Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. Last chapter in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran it to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with, with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we just want your will. We just want your work to happen in each one of our hearts, Lord. We want to hear what you're saying to us. Help us, Father, to receive everything that you uniquely want to apply to our hearts. Help us to be willing to be obedient to your word, not deceiving ourselves by hearing only. We pray, Lord, that you would use this time for your holy use in each one of our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. It's always exciting to finish a book. A lot of that has to do with because you actually began a book. And unfortunately, it's getting less and less common to start a book on a Sunday or, or a midweek or something and actually go through an entire book in context. And so we want to be thankful for what he's done in our lives because we have seen verse by verse his life, his ministry, and so many things. We've looked at his life. We've looked at that ministry, that amazing ministry, from beginning to end, from Matthew's perspective, there's still Mark, Luke, and John. Again, John's content is 90% unique to John's gospel. 
So we're going to see a little bit of repetition in Mark and Luke and so forth, but from different writers' perspectives, and they're aiming at something a little bit different in each one of them. And so there's, there is, even though we're seeing some of the same content, there's things that are unique to each one of those uh, books, but also we need repetition. I need repetition. Peter said in Second Peter chapter 1 that he would always provide a, a means by which they'd be reminded of the things that he was teaching them and that we need those things over and over in, in our lives. So we've seen the main purpose of what, what Matthew was trying to accomplish as we've studied this book. Matthew, being a Jew, was writing to Jews about a Jew, the Messiah, to prove biblically that there's a biblical basis for the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. It gave proof after proof after proof with these prophecies. We've seen his miracles. We've seen his compassion for the hurting, his lifting up of faith, highlighting and venerating a a centurion and a woman that wasn't even a a Jew that was lived outside of Israel, her faith, highlighting that faith isn't unique to Jews and that we can grow and learn from anybody related to having faith in him. But also, more than any other gospel, as I've said, Matthew records most of Christ's teaching than any other gospel. Sixty percent of the gospel of Matthew is comprised of the Lord Jesus' teaching. And we saw five major teaching passages that were strategically placed throughout the book by Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, for very specific reasons. We also saw that Jesus' ministry and life was divided into thirds, and it was the, the year of of obscurity, the year of popularity, and the year of opposition. And, and so we saw the transition time. We saw that the turning point, as in all the Gospels, was the feeding of the 5,000. John elaborates on this. We'll get involved in that in depth when we get to John's Gospel. But at that point, after he did that, they wanted to take him and make him a king by force. That was the the the... the, the uh, climax in the sense of his popularity ending because after that he starts saying things that are difficult for them to hear he's he's starting to try to refine or weed out or make the crowds less and less based on if they're truly interested in the truth today we're interested in crowds and the bigger the better and jesus is trying to narrow down the crowds try to get them to be uh, the legitimate disciples that he was shooting for or, or aiming at or wanting to produce and so it, that, from that point on, there was more op, um, organized opposition for his ministry, and we, we noted that. But then after Caesarea Philippi, when Peter had his high, high, and his low, low there, um, then he started facing towards Jerusalem steadfastly. And Luke tells us from that point on, he steadfastly made his way to Jerusalem, set his face towards Jerusalem for the cross. Many times he said his time had not yet come. And he knew that his time was coming. He was focused on it. He still was who he was. He still healed. He still healed blind Bartimaeus. He, he uh, saved Zacchaeus. We didn't see that on this, in this gospel, but we'll see it in other places. And, and he kept serving, kept giving on his life. He kept uh, talking about faith and the importance of faith, facing the cross the whole entire time, with the cross, with knowing that man would completely turn on him and say, and we saw this a couple weeks ago when they said his blood be on us and our children. He knew all of that instead and still kept serving, kept pouring out his heart, kept being vulnerable. He still had he had feelings. He was a man, too, not just God. He was a God man and he had feelings. He's had his feelings hurt, I'm sure. And things said to him that hurt him because his great heart for people. So we saw all of that 
And then we saw, like I said a couple weeks ago, the cross. And that all of us put him on that cross. And what held him to that cross was not those nails, what was because of his love. His love held him to that cross for us. And, and his desire to redeem mankind and to save us. And it was a good gaze into the wickedness of man that we would do that, that we would put him there and, and completely sell out and, and just our wicked hearts. And all of us have that apart from Christ. So now as we get into chapter 28, we're told at verse, in verse 1, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. So this is the first day of the week. This is Sunday. Later it would be no, could become known as the Lord's Day. Uh, John references this in the book of Revelation. And they called it the Lord's Day because it was the day that he rose from the dead. So it switched from Saturday to Sundays, the main day that Christians worshipped uh, at that point. And so we're told that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and hopefully she didn't mind being called the other Mary. I don't know if you'd like that, the other Mary. Uh, this, was Mary this is Mary, the mother of James the Lesser. Another name for him is Alphaeus. And so that was who this was uh, here coming to the tomb. This is not Jesus' mother, Mary, here. She didn't come to the tomb that w- that's recorded there. And we're told that there was an earthquake, and it appears that the earthquake uh, is related to this angel descending. Notice the word for in the middle of verse 2. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. So I believe this was a localized earthquake that was related to this angel and we're told there's a, there's another angel there as well in other gospels but he's focusing on this one uh in this gospel and so the way that he rolled back the stone because the way that tombs were in for the wealthy at least is that they were caves they dug out caves and they were hewn out of the rock and this man was joseph arimathea was wealthy and he gave the lord jesus his own tomb his own family tomb no one had ever laid in it before or been put to rest there and so you have, you know, this hole, basically, and then they would, they would have this little slot in the ground, and they would take a boulder that was a little bit more flat, and they would roll it in front on an incline, so the in, it would descend from the, the decline, rather, and right into place, and it would stay there. And then we know that from other Gospels that there was a seal put on it that basically said, if you mess with this, you're messing with Rome. And they put a guard there. There were people guarding it and all of this. And so this angel came, and he didn't roll the stone away to let Jesus out. <laughs> he, he rolled the stone away to let the disciples in, to be able to see that the Lord Jesus was not there anymore. Now notice the description of the angel in verse 3. We're told, his countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. This makes sense because everything that God creates is beautiful. And so only thing that Matthew would have a, a com- way to compare it to would be lightning and how bright lightning is and how white lightning is. And, and it says that the clothing, his clothing as white as snow, it all speaks of the purity of God. In him there's no darkness at all and, and so forth. And so this amazing angel is described here. And then we're told in verse 4, And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now, it's important for us to know that the word shook here in verse 4, that root word there is the same one that's used to describe an earthquake. So they, it wasn't just a little, you know, just like, you know, when you get cold and you get a shiver. This is shuddering in fear. And, and it's noteworthy because these were military men. 
They were used to seeing horrific things. They were used to seeing things that were pretty uh, substantial and so forth. And they are, are not just want, you know, wanting to be still because they're scared. They're, 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 it's debilitating. What's happening here is them seeing this angel. It's debilitating. It's overloading their senses and causing trauma. I bet you some of them passed out. I don't know if you've ever been so afraid that you've literally passed out. I haven't. I should have many times. I haven't, and, you know, I, but sometimes you're just so fearful that you can just pass out. And, and these, this is a group of men, highly trained military men there, and, and they became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. They were very afraid. They were horrified. I mean, why? I mean, what's going on here? What, why are they so afraid? They, they, see, they expected to see a dead Messiah. We're told in other, Mark and uh, uh, John uh, that they had come, especially Mark, they had come at the end of the Sabbath. The Sabbath ended at 6 p.m. on Saturday night. So they had come, and they, they, were, they knew where the body was. They looked from afar. They, they wanted to prepare the body themselves, and that's why they were coming early in the morning to, to be able to finish that. They were, they were stopped from doing that, and we'll get to the reasons why in, in other Gospels. But here they were coming for completely different reasons, and they were shocked by, by this. Uh, they, were, they were afraid. And so the angel... Uh, wants to encourage him do not be afraid for i know that you seek jesus who was crucified so there is exposing their their motive and saying it's it's fine it's fine that you had these expectations but something other than what uh you expected happened he says in verse six he is not here for he is risen now if you go to the garden tomb in israel where where a lot of people believe the tomb is uh at least protestants on the back of the door it says for he, he is not here, for he is risen. It says that right on the back of the, uh, the door there, and it's, it's, it's an incredible experience. But he says, Come see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell the disciples, Behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Now, angels never accept worship. You see in the book of Revelation, you may remember when we looked at that, when John wanted to worship the angel, the angel said, Don't don't do that, I'm a fellow servant. And in the Old Testament, you see the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus appearing in the Bible before the New Testament. It has to say, the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord. It has to say the angel in the Old Testament. That, and that, that uh, is the picture of Jesus in the Old Testament, and he receives worship. So angels always deflect worship. The, Satan was called Lucifer, who wanted to be worshipped. He got cast down to earth as a result of that, and, and a third of the angels went with him. So they know very well the danger of, of receiving worship when they're not supposed to. And here they held, they were, uh, held him by his feet, and worship him. He tells them to rejoice, and that's what we should do anytime we think about the resurrected Christ, is rejoice. Because if he has power to raise himself from the dead, he has power to raise us from the dead. And it, it, it goes together, and we should have joy. No matter what happens to us in this life, nobody can take that away from us. 
Nobody can take away the promise of eternal life and the fact that he's going to raise us from the dead uh, when we get our new bodies. Then he says in verse uh, 10, he said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, this location in Galilee, I believe, was already spoken about and pre-planned. He's going to get that in, uh, get to that in, in a minute. And, and so I believe this is where we told in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that at one point over 500 saw him. We're told that there are 10 resurrection appearances that Christ makes. If you study the scriptures, you'll see 10. There, may, there probably was more than that, but that's what it records, that there were 10 um, resurrection, post-resurrection uh, appearances there. And, and it, so Paul talks about this one time where he appeared before over 500 people at once. And I believe that's what happens here in Galilee, because that, that's where most of his followers were. And, and we'll get into a little bit other reasons why. But notice he says in the verse, go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and they will see me. It's the first time you ever referred to them as brethren. I happen to believe that was a broader um, application. It's not just the 11. We're told the 11 go there and, he's, and he talks to them, but I believe there's others that are there in Galilee as well. Now let's see what the devil's got cooking up in verse 11 here. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. So the chief priests at this point, they cried out to God, admitted their sin, repented, and became disciples that very hour. No, it doesn't say that. But that's what you would expect, right? That's what you would expect their response to be. I mean, if these military men who are highly trained, that had their lives in jeopardy here because they supposedly fell asleep, uh, then why would they lie? They have no motivation to lie. And they're explaining something supernatural to these chief priests. And instead of having the natural response of owning up to what they've done and repenting and asking God's forgiveness and throwing themselves on the mercy of the court, so to speak, and all of that, they harden their heart even more. Don't ever underestimate the power of, of, of a hardened heart. People say, and I've had them say this to me when I'm sharing my faith with them, oh, you know what, if you could just produce Jesus right here, and if he could do a miracle, I would believe. And I say, no, you wouldn't necessarily. Because in his day, he did miracles in front of people, and there are people that didn't believe. Because you, our hearts can, are so wicked. They're so, they can be so hardened against the things of the Lord, um, not cooperating with what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives, that we can, we can do amazing things in, in, in our wickedness. So that's not the response. Well, let's continue what they did. Verse 12. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them, His disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now, this whole account here of them bribing these soldiers, Matthew's the only one that reveals this in the four Gospels. And there have been, this causes a big problem for people that are skeptics, this whole thing. Because the disciples, they all gave their lives saying that Jesus rose from the dead. That they saw it, that they witnessed it. And, and so the issue is, where did the body go? See, the enemies of Christ 
if they, they would never steal the body and, and keep it from people because they wanted to show that he was a liar. I guarantee you if the Romans or the Jews, if they had that body, they would be parading around in a big, huge procession saying, see, this man was a liar. He's, he didn't raise from the dead and all this foolishness and nonsense needs to go away right now. But they, but they didn't do that. So that means they didn't have the body. Now, the disciples, them stealing the body. First of all, I'd like to know how you know the disciples did anything if you were asleep. You ever had someone tell you that they don't snore? How do you know that? You know, because you can't hear yourself. You're not aware of what's going on around you. I've had people describe vividly what was going on while they were sleeping. I like to know how they did that. I can't do that. So it's ridiculous. What excuse, you, first of all, they were not allowed to sleep. They're not allowed to fall asleep. And number two is, is, is how would they know what happened? Maybe, who knows what had happened? But see, what this does is this creates an airtight case because since the enemies could not have stolen the body because they would have produced it, it only leaves one option, and that is the disciples stole the body. But the problem is they all gave their lives saying they saw him raised from the dead. So that creates a problem. And so because of all these security precautions with the seal, with the, with the temple guards there, with all the things that they put in place to make sure that he stayed in that tomb, the fact that he left the tomb shows that, the, that he was telling the truth, that, that, and they were telling the truth, that he rose from the dead. And this is why. Many people die for a cause. Kamikaze pilots in World War II died for their cause. Uh, we have... Muslims that are, you know, killing themselves around other people, and they're dying for a cause. So people say, well, what makes the disciples any different? The difference is they knew whether or not he rose from the dead. And if he didn't rise from the dead and they stole the body, why would they do that and give their lives saying that he did rise from the dead when they did not get any riches or wealth or fame or any of these things? They got persecuted and beaten and killed. So that's why the disciples had to give their lives they, they had to be martyrs because they sealed the fact of the resurrection perfectly. And, and, and so people, that, people don't die for things they know to be false. That's the answer. They don't. And there was a, there was a Jewish uh, teacher of Harvard Law School that became a Christian by his Christian students challenging him to take the evidence of the disciples in their lives and, and apply the, his rules of, of law and evidence to that. And he ended up becoming a Christian because there was no motive for them to say that he rose from the dead if, if he hadn't rose, risen from the dead and he became a Christian. So a lot of people have come to know Christ because of this. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, they knew that he couldn't rise that, raise their bodies to life. And, he, and they, there wouldn't be any reason to live for eternity and, and, and sacrifice their lives. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. That's why I believe this is pre... That he had, I believe he had talked about this to them. Verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And the some doubted could include some of the disciples, but... See, they've already seen him before this. We're told in other passages. So I believe this is, this is why I believe this includes not just the 11. This includes a larger group. Maybe not necessarily the 500 at that moment, but, but a larger group than them. We're not told specifically, but the issue is this was pre-appointed. This is something that uh, they knew that was coming, uh, and they didn't believe it was coming, but later on they remembered, oh, yeah, there was, he told us about this one place to go and all of that, and they went there. Now, we come to, as we start verse 18, we come to what's known as the Great 
Commission. And it's one of the most powerful sections of Scripture in the entire Bible. It is so full of truth and so full of important truth that it's very important to look at it as closely as we possibly can because it gets to the whole purpose of the church. It gets to what, is, what he wants us to do, our mission. It, it touches on so many things. And I would ask you, if you're familiar with it, to just try to focus on what he might be speaking to you today, even if you're very familiar with it, because it's not about, and we'll get into this, not necessarily about what you know. It's about what you're doing and what you're not doing. And, I, and I'm talking to myself too. Let's start in verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So I want to stop there. And we don't usually talk a lot about the Lord Jesus' exaltation as a result of his death on the cross, but that's something that's vividly described and revealed in the New Testament. Part of what was coming his way related to God's blessing on his life, because he was blessed as a result of his obedience by the Father. Part of that was receiving authority that couldn't be given until he was obedient all the way until the cross. Now, of course, him being God, he was part of that whole decision-making and all of that beforehand, but there was a very specific uh, exaltation and authority that was given to him subsequent to the cross. I want us to hold your place here. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. I want us to look at a a passage that gets into this a little bit. Philippians chapter 2. No shame in looking at your table of contents. You know. Philippians chapter 2. I want to begin reading in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, that's an important therefore. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here we see this important exaltation here because of his death, because of his obedience. We see the word therefore in verse 9 there, highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, his authority, his character, his everything that is encompassed in his mission and all of that, because of his obedience to the cross, he was exalted in a very profound way. Now, what a lot of people don't know is that this was fulfilled, this scripture that was written in all of, Paul was referencing something from the Old Testament. I want to read it to you from Isaiah 45, verse 22 and verse 23. Because the Jews in Philippi, that had a Jewish background, would know exactly what, what, what Paul was saying about the Lord Jesus based on what, Isaiah the prophet had had written in Isaiah 45. Verse 22 says, "Look, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That to me every knee shall bow, 
every tongue shall take an oath. See, this is God speaking in the first person there. But then Paul is saying that the, the fulfillment of that scripture is every knee will confess that Jesus is Lord. That means that Jesus is God, that Jesus was speaking there uh, and inspiring, and, and God was inspiring Isaiah the prophet to say that. Jesus fulfilled that, and, and the, the authority that he has is represented by how people are going to be submitted to him and bow the knee before him someday. When they're at, and we don't want any person that we come in contact with to be at the great white throne judgment where every knee will bow and every tongue confess. By then it'll be too late because they're facing Jesus as their judge instead of facing him at another judgment as, as the rewarder of their, of their heart and their works and all of those things as, at the judgment seat of Christ. God doesn't want us to face him as a judge. He wants, to, wants to, to, us to face him as our savior. Now turn back to Matthew 28. I want us to see the connection between verse 18 and verse 19. And it's the word, like I said, therefore. And it's all about authority. It's all about authority. Because to do what God's calling us to do, we need proper authority. When a commanding officer commands his troops to mobilize and start a campaign, fighting against the enemy, going out into battle, they need to know he has authority to transfer to them. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying, I have authority and it has nothing to do with you. (laughs) He's basically saying, I am sending you because I have this authority and I'm transferring my authority or entrusting my authority to you to go out and do what I'm telling you to do right now. That's what he's getting at. So he's allowing us to use his authority. Remember when he sent out the 70 and he sent out, he sent the disciples out and he gave them his authority to go out and heal the sick and deliver people from demons and preach the gospel of the kingdom and all of those things because they couldn't do that on their own. They could only do it because of his authority that he had given to them, entrusted to them. That's the only means by which they're able to do all those things. And it's the same with us. It's important. We need to know that we have Jesus's authority when we obey the Great Commission. We're not coming in our own authority. And it means that all of God's resources, when any military goes out under the authority of that country and that military, they have, or they're supposed to have, the full resources of that country and that military behind them. And that's exactly what the case for us related to preaching the gospel and going out and obeying the Great Commission because all he wouldn't send us out without giving us all those things. And all through the Old Testament, you see that he, he, he always gives his grace and his power and provision with any calling that anybody has. Any calling that we might have related to service, he always gives us the grace to do to function and, and the power to function in that calling. That's why you don't want to be doing things God hasn't called you to do because there's no grace for it. Sometimes pastors feel like it's their job to grow the church and they kill themselves doing every gimmick possible and even using manipulation and all these horrible things that hurt God's people because they're putting something on their shoulders that God hasn't put on their shoulders. There's no grace for it. He said for the past, he didn't say to Peter, if you love me, multiply my sheep. <laughs> Say, if you love me, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. That's, that's your job, to build up the church, not to build it. Jesus said he would build the church, and, his, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And if I hear one more person say we're one generation from the church dying, I'm going to just go ballistic because Jesus said that the church is not going to stop. It's not going to stop. It's going forward. There's nothing that this world can do to stop the church going forward. There's always a remnant. There will always be a remnant. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be relevant and 
reach out to the younger generation? Of course. But the church isn't stopping. Whether we're with it or not, it's, not, it's going forward. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now notice verse 19. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to know that in the original language, the command, there's, there's tenses that verbs have that emphasize a command. And it's not in the word go. As important as that is. And it's, I'm not saying it's not a command. But what's emphasized here in the original language is make disciples. That's the only verb. It's actually it's the only verb in this verse. The rest are other forms of it. But it's talking about making disciples, not merely converts. There's some translations say go out into all the world and preach the gospel. It, it, it says make disciples. And it's commanding us to make disciples. The word disciple means learner. And it's kind of like our word apprentice. There's no celebrity apprentices either in the body of Christ. Because God doesn't say you're fired. You know, he, he continues to encourage us. He continues to help us to rid ourselves of... Some of you will get that in a few minutes. But, um, you know, he continues to work in our lives so that we're humble and we're, it's not about us and, and so forth. And we never become a journeyman. Those of you in the trade, you know that you have to be an apprentice first. And I'm not even going to get into Star Wars and apprentices and all that. But you have to, you, you know, you... you you, you have to become an apprentice first before you become a journeyman. But there's no such thing as a journeyman because we continue to be learning. We continue to be learning all the way through our Christian pilgrimage. And disciples are not made by merely learning head knowledge, but by doing. And that's very important for us to see that, by doing, by obeying. And, and he is working at us knowing by experience and, and, and obeying him and everything that he has told us to do. And disciples are made through surrendering. You can't live a life of growth as a disciple if you're not surrendering because Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And he also said, unless uh, someone basically gives up everything that they have, they cannot be my disciple. And that's a daily process. That's a daily process. He's not looking for people who want to add him to their existing lives to make their existing lives better. He's not looking for fans. He's not looking for Twitter followers. He's looking for real followers that really follow him. And, and he's looking for people that want to follow him wherever he leads, whatever he says for them to do, he, they're going to do. By God's grace, of course, by God's power. But he, he's not just wanting to add a little bit of him so that he can make our existing lives better. There are churches, unfortunately, filled with people, every church, and so it's not like we're the ones that don't have this. There's, there's those people in every church not dying to self. No dying to sin. No fellowship of his sufferings. No increasing obedience. No, not my will be done, but your be done. No repentance. No grieving over sin. No steps of faith which make no sense to anyone else but God. And, and many times that's it. Just makes sense to him, not even you. There's no forsaking all. There's no being other-centered. There's no persecution. There's no being willing to be exhorted. It's all about me, what I can get, fulfilling my prosperous dreams. It's man-centered. It's faithless. It's weak. It's worldly. Am I talking to anybody here? It's, it's not Christ-honoring. It's devoid of worship. It's, it's, it's self-worship. There's no worshiping of God with my life. It's not attractive. It's, it's powerless. It's compromising. It's emotion-based. It's 
self-serving. It grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit. It doesn't allow him to lead him, to be led by him. It repels the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's fruitless. It's popular. It's crowd-building. And it guarantees never hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. That's where all of it leads. An American, as they say, churchianity, so often will be you know, incorporating in our lives to where we're, we're, we're not good for anything related to the kingdom. And, and Jesus is grieved by that. I see these things on TV and these people are there with their Bibles open and the crowds, tens of thousands of people around. They're there hungry. They're starving. They're like a little bird with its mouth open. You know, feed me. And, and, and garbage is being discussed. And they're not being fed. That's not what God's aiming at. And notice he also says to go in verse 19. He doesn't say invite. He doesn't say invite and, and, and make disciples. He says go and make disciples. He didn't say, when he talked to the disciples and he's talking about the Great Commission, he's not saying, you know, this is what I want. I want you guys to stay in Jerusalem and I want you to do everything that you can in your power to get as many people in the world to come to you and then they're going to come to know, to know me if they come to you. Get the whole world to come to you. That's the opposite direction. He says, go. We have to go out to wherever. The go can mean a lot of different things to, to us, depending on our calling and our situation. He didn't say that. He said, you need to go and reach people where they're at. Now, there's nothing wrong with inviting people to church. That's fine. But that's not, the, that's not how God set things up for the main vehicle for evangelism. There is not one recorded conversion in a Christian church in the book of Acts. Now, I know what happened. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, if an unbeliever comes in among you and you're all speaking in tongues, you're going to think you're crazy. Unbelievers came in among them, and we know if there's an unbeliever in the room anywhere, the gospel is going to be preached in a church. But we, don't, we see Christians being equipped. We see Christians maturing. We see Christians getting their eyes off themselves and getting out and preaching the gospel and then bringing people in the church to be discipled. And we've got that all mixed up, it seems like, in in many different environments. So he wants us to, to be mature enough to reproduce. And it first starts with being willing to be open, to obey his great commission. As it's been said, it's not the great suggestion, It's the Great Commission, and I talk about it often, not just for myself, but for everybody else, that the Great Commission is something to be obeyed. I use that word obey on purpose, because we're either going to obey the Great Commission or we're not, because this cycle of being discipled, growing in maturity, being willing to go out and preach the gospel, know how to do that, be willing to do it, then bringing them in to be discipled, that's the system that God has set up. Any other system is going to starve the sheep. When you try to make the church service for seekers alone, you're going to starve the sheep, and you're going to say fancy little things that impress them and all that, but you're not going to be talking about all the things that need to be said. The early church weren't very willing to go either. And so there had to, there, God had to ran, allow persecution to happen. You look at the book of Acts. After Stephen was stoned, and so forth, then you start seeing him allowing that persecution, and Saul, that came, became the apostle Paul, was part of that, and they were scattered. He uses that word scattered, broadcast, like seed, and so we could, we're the same as they were. They're not any more spiritual than us. They had to be uh, were, you know, dealt with by the Lord, and sometimes God allows things in our lives to get our focus off of ourselves and onto others through difficult 
times to help us to see that we need to be about what he wants us to be about. Just picture being on a ship, and, I'm, you know, whether if you're older like me, you remember the love boat. Um, if you're really older than me, you remember the Titanic, uh, maybe. Not like you were on it, but, um, you know, you heard about it. Uh, there's different ships. In fact, they're rebuilding the Titanic, uh, another one. They're not going to sail that same route, bunch of chickens, but um, I think they should. Don't you? Come on. If you're, it's not like they won't have lifeboats. But uh, anyway, so let's say you're on the deck of a boat and you fall overboard. And someone throws you a life preserver. Now, the first thing, you're going to be thankful that there's a way to be saved. You're not going to be offended that there's not a bunch of different kinds of life preservers, right? You're going to be thankful that there is a way to be saved. And then all of a sudden, you get pulled up on board and a bunch of other people get thrown overboard. Now, can you picture yourself seeing that and going, you know what? I don't want to offend them. I don't want to say anything wrong. I don't want to do anything that might, you know, they didn't ask me to throw a life preserver in their life. And they might think badly of me for some reason. So I'm just going to go back into my cabin and hang out. And I'm not going to care if those people are drowning. Now, another example would be if we were sick and there was this massive, huge uh, pandemic going around. And we had the, the vaccine. Someone gave us the vaccine. We were, we were blessed enough to have them in our lives that were willing to give us that. And then we had, we knew where that was, but we refused to tell people who were dying right in front of us where to find the vaccine. Now, I know that all of us can grow and all of us have room to grow related to evangelism, but I want, the Lord wants us to see what his heart is for the lost and contrast that with our heart for the lost. Because we can't just shut up our heart against people that are dying and going to hell be, all around us because those things like dying over, you know, going over the ship or dying of a, of a disease have, have temporary or temporal implications. But for, for this whole thing with the gospel and all that, they're eternal. They never end. 20 billion, trillion, 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 trillion years from now doesn't even equal one second of eternity. There's no second chances. And so God, that's how desperate. Remember when he was talking to the woman at the well? That's why that was the first teaching from this pulpit when we planted the church. It was the first teaching when we came into this building because I want us to see God's heart for the lost. He said, my will or my food is to do the will of my father. He wasn't concerned about his physical anything because he knew that eternity was at stake there with this woman and the rest of that village that he would, he would reach as well. So we have to be willing to do it. But what's holding us back? Is it, is it approval of others? We have to care more about people's eternal destiny than we do what they think about us. Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, am I still trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. We're told in Proverbs that the fear of man is a snare. You can't please God and please man all at the same time. Jesus warned, beware when all men speak well of you. So we have to do what's right, regardless of what people think and so forth. Another option would be that we don't feel equipped so I would take responsibility for that. I know that that is in our court, too, related to resources. There are books on evangelism here. There's a lot that we have planned that's coming related to equipping you for preaching the gospel. And one of them is very, very powerful. It's hands-on training. And, and just this week, it's funny, I'm teaching on this, and the Lord reveals something that's huge for our church that's related to evangelism training and so forth that's going to greatly, greatly impact uh, his church. So that's, I'm excited about that. The other thing that can get in the way, well, you know, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Well, there's no gift of evangelism. Try to find it. There's no gift of evangelism. There are evangelists. 
And that's uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, that's a leadership office gift where they, they have the gift of preaching the gospel, but also their calling is to equip the saints in that way as well. But all of us have a calling to preach the gospel. Just like Gary said earlier, we're not called to be evangelists, but we're called to all be engaged in evangelism. And, and so that could be done many different ways. Notice also we're supposed to go to all the nations. Did you see that? All people, all nations. No one is, is supposed to be left out. And we can, with our evangelism, we can be a little bit choosy, unfortunately. We prejudge, oh, they're never going to listen to us. They're never going to listen to me. Jesus said that the harvest is ripe. It's ready to be harvested. That's what he said about the harvest field. He said the problem is not the harvest field. We, we criticize the harvest field all the time. Oh, they're not open. They're hardened. They don't want to hear it. All these things. Jesus saying, nope, it's ripe. Low-hanging fruit for you. The problem is lack of workers to go into the harvest field. That's the problem. And the answer, prayer. We should be praying more for workers to go into the harvest field that's the, our main approach related to helping the lost get saved um, in, in our spheres of influence. Now, notice he says we're supposed to baptize. Now, again, this speaks of his authority that he talked about. We're supposed to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice this is speaking of the Trinity here. And he's very, getting very specific because notice the word name there is a singular he didn't say baptizing him in the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One name, talking about one God. But notice he says, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the grammar there, he's emphasizing that they're distinct, that they're three distinct persons, or else he would have just said the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he didn't. He made a point to say, and of the, and of the, and of the. That's emphasizing their distinctness. So there's one God reveals himself in three persons. But when you're baptizing you, you're realizing you're helping people make a public profession of faith and letting the world know. That's why it's best to do them in public places, I believe. And, and, and letting the world know, I've already made a decision for Christ. I've already identified with his, his death and his resurrection, his death, burial, and resurrection. And so we should be doing that. We should be seeing, healthy churches should be seeing people getting baptized regularly because of salvations occurring. It's very important. Now we get to verse 20. So not only are we supposed to go and baptize to make disciples, we're also supposed to teach people to observe. Notice verse 20. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What's the difference between preaching and teaching? I hear a lot of things. And I've experienced a lot of things and different definitions, and people come up with all these things. But we have a lot of traditions that aren't necessarily biblical. Preaching is not getting people riled up, fired up emotionally, and excited, and, and motivating them. And then teaching is for adult Sunday school where we get serious and we actually teach the Bible. Preaching is always associated, except one time, it's always associated with the gospel. And it simply means proclaim. It's the word they used when a heralder would come and announce good news to a kingdom uh, from this vantage point of the king, speaking for the king. They would go out and herald or speak truth and encouragement to the rest of the people, and they would say, this is the good news that the king says. That's what they would be thinking when they heard this word. It was never associated with discipleship or you know, any of those things related to, to preaching. Preaching was, it means to proclaim, and so that's what we do. We preach the gospel, but we teach the word. 
Teaching is related to instruction. It's teaching all the word of God. Notice it says, observe all things. All things. Everything that the disciples heard, we're supposed to hear those things too. And we're supposed to learn everything that God inspired them to to write and so forth. And many false teachers today are false teachers because not only is their message man-centered, which is one of the main ways that you can recognize them, but also their message is devoid or void rather of, you know, in other words, it's not what they're saying. It's necessarily, it's what they're not saying. It's what they're leaving out. And, and that's why we enjoy the protection and safety which comes by learning the entire Bible because there's nowhere to hide. I see people come in here, they're 20 minutes in, they're miserable, they're looking at their watch, they're, 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 just, they're convicted, they don't, they're not interested in being shaped by the Word of God. Again, they're wanting to add a little Jesus to their existing life and get some success. That's not what God is offering them. I remember Pastor Chuck saying to us in, in class when I was in the school of ministry, he would say, fellas, don't just give them the sweets. They need the meat and potatoes. They need their veggies. God hasn't left it up to you to decide what to leave out. Don't leave any of it out. Make the people the best loved, best fed, best served group of people on the earth. Don't focus on the empty seats, but the full ones, and you'll be all right. He used to say that, all right. You know, and, and, and I've always remembered that. The whole counsel of God. Paul said that in Acts chapter 20. The whole counsel of God. All scripture is given by inspiration. All. So we need to be covering all of that. That's the protection. But when you leave out repentance, you leave out hell, you, you leave out sin, you leave out all the things we need to be confronted by, by the word, then you get the popular messages and the crowds and all that because the flesh loves to hear all the, th- the goodies I can get. And the flesh hates to hear all the wickedness that I need to repent of. So of course the crowds are going to be growing. And, and, and he wrote to Timothy, he said they're going to heap up teachers for themselves that give them what their itching ears want to hear. And so that's and sadly going to be increasing. <laughs> Notice also he says that the command should be on teaching them to observe. Notice all things that Jesus commanded to them. Observe. Teaching them to observe. We just focus on teaching, teaching, teaching. I need to learn, learn information. <laughs> it's everything that they told them to do is for us to do as well. There's only one way to make disciples. It was mess- if it was necessary for them, it's necessary for us. The issue isn't about learning head knowledge. It's about obedience. If we're not growing in obedience, we are not growing as a disciple. And we think that learning information or what we agree with when we hear a teaching is the measure of our maturity. And God is measuring on a completely different uh, standard. It's what we obey that he's measuring our growth by. So God's measuring it by what we obey, not merely do I agree with it. That's why he, in James, James brilliantly refers to the word of God as like a mirror, that we see our face, we see our current condition. That's what mirrors do. They don't tell us about how we looked 10 years ago. We wish that they showed us that. They give us an assessment of our present condition physically. That's what God's word does. That's why we need to hear things over and over, because maybe the last time I heard it, I was obeying in this area, but today I'm not. And if we leave here or our devotions or any Bible study that we go to forgetting about the conviction and what God told us we need to obey, first of all, we need to not listen to sermons for other people. I've done that too. This is great for them. This is great. What wonderful. I hope they're listening right now. And right, and the word's getting whoop, whoop, stolen. And I'm not thinking about what it's 
what the purpose is for me and how my life is supposed to change. It's not a matter of, do I agree with this? It's a matter of, do I obey this? Every time we learn the Word of God or study the Word of God or in a teaching or whatever, we need to ask ourselves, am I doing this right now? And it shouldn't be just no, and that's it, and then walk out and no changes are made. It's repentance right then. Lord, I want to obey you in this. I repent of not doing this. Give me, help me, help me grow as a a disciple of yours. I want to grow. I want to be more like you, Jesus. And it's beautiful because he's faithful to do it. Notice he says there, uh, then lastly, Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And this can be passed up because it looks like, well, you know, that's great. What's the significance of it? But this is very related to going because a, a military commander would, would, the captains especially, and those that were over the, the troops and closest to the troops, they would be embedded with the troops. It wouldn't be the generals far, far away and all that. They had a purpose in that. I'm not disparaging that. But the ones that really oversee the, 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 the rank and file, the troops, are embedded with them. And he says, I'm going with you. I am with you always. This promise was to the entire church all the way up to, to, to now. We're almost, I believe, at the end of the age where man's rule is going on in this world. We're almost there, I believe. And so Matthew began this, the book with talking about that one would come that would be named Emmanuel, which is from the Old Testament, which means God with us. And he ends the book by revealing what Jesus said related to, I will always, I'm always with you. I'm Emmanuel. I'll always be with you, always, even to the end of the age. And he doesn't put conditions on it. Well, as long as you're doing good, as long as you're being consistent, as long as you're, you know, he doesn't say that. He's with you even when you fail. And we need to know that. You know, in the Old Testament, you see the patriarchs and the people that were used by the Lord, they would be basically saying, God, I don't want to even go. I don't want to do what you're calling me to do unless you go with me. And he always did. And you see the the Israelites, even through the wilderness, in their disobedience, God still was there providing for them physically. He was still providing shade. He was still providing light for them. He was still being faithful. Their shoes not wearing out for 40 years. He was still with them. He never left them. He never forsook them. And that's the case with us. I need to know that. You need to know that as we go out and we preach the gospel, as we make disciples, we we need to know that. Because it's a daunting task. It's far beyond anything we can in ourselves could possibly do. We need to know he's going to go with us. We need to know that it's unconditional because it is. Now notice, lastly, Matthew finishes with one word, amen. And amen means that's the truth, so be it. He hears what Jesus says and he records it and he says, amen to it. So, so much here. Where, just as we allow the, the Holy Spirit to, and we're going to sing a few songs in a moment where you can respond and so forth. But where are we at related to our discipleship, growing as a disciple? It's so easy for us to go through the motions, isn't it? To be religious, especially if we have a religious background before coming to know Christ. We can just think that God cares that I move from one location to the other, and I'm there, and I'm learning things, and then I go back to where I was before. Everything stays the same. Nothing's changed. I'm not growing, and I self-deceive myself into thinking that, God is blessed with my progress and he doesn't want anything more than me, more from me. And that's not true. Because if we're dying to self every day and we're taking up our cross daily and following him, he's going to lead us where he wants us to go. And the level of maturity is up to him, not, not up to us. He just determined, gets to determine 
how far we go in our growth and where we go and what we obey and how he uses us. Those are, you want his will, trust me. You don't want your will. You don't want my will. You want his will to define that for you. And he will do far beyond everything we could ask or think. We have to be willing to go. Despite the tape on the doors, God wants you to go. I don't know what that's about. I'm sure there's a good reason for it. But he wants us to go. It's, it's not about only inviting. It's about going. It's about being available. It's about having our heart open to the Holy Spirit wherever we go. And God puts, and I love hearing some of you are newer believers and you've shared with me, I was at the gas station and God laid this person on my heart and, and wouldn't let that person go in my heart until I had to go up and speak and I had this burden and I spoke to them and they were receptive. They let me pray for them. I, you know, and I'm not saying every one of us has to do that every time we go get gas. You know, I, I understand that. But being willing to be available any moment for him to use us. You know, salvation should be a normal thing that we experience in our church. It shouldn't go for months and months and months without having anyone get saved. God's called all of us. He uses the gifts of the Holy Spirit with the people and the leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that we're built up and strengthened and encouraged and matured so that we can go out there and reproduce. If it's been weeks or months or years or maybe never of ever leading someone to Christ and making a disciple, then those things I would bring to the Lord and ask, why? Why hasn't that happened, God? Why am I not seeing? Am I not available? Am I not? Is there something in the way? Am I not? Am I unwilling to learn how to do it? What is the issue? And God will reveal that to you. And so I also believe that some of that has to do with being willing to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He said that the Holy Spirit, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. Some of us, are, we don't have any boldness whatsoever. We've never been baptized with the Holy Spirit. We've never been filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said that's, that's with the boldness that, I mean, the disciples, after they were filled with the Spirit, in Acts chapter 4, they were threatened, and they were in the house, and they prayed, God, fill us with your Spirit. Give us your servant's boldness. And he poured out his Holy Spirit, and the earthquake happened, and they were refilled, and they went out preaching boldly, and the religious leaders were shocked. Like, are you serious? These guys are seriously out here again after we threatened them and put them in jail, and they don't care. It's not my life. It's his life. He's bought my life. Uh, he paid a high price for my life. I'm not my own anymore. So maybe that's you today. I want anyone that wants to be baptized with the Holy Spirit or refilled with the Spirit, and you want to go deeper than you ever have, I want you to stand, and I want to pray for you right now. It doesn't mean if you don't stand that you don't want that. I'm just saying if you want to stand and have me pray for you, I'm going to pray for everybody, I want you to stand right now. You're willing to grow in whatever way he wants you to grow, surrender any way he wants you to surrender, and and be willing to be a disciple, someone that reproduces. Let me pray for you now. Father, I pray for myself first. I pray, Lord, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit now. And I pray for every one of your people here that you know their hearts, you know what they're saying to you right now by by opening up their heart to you while sitting or standing, whatever. I pray, Father, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit right now to overflow. And you'd baptize them with your Holy Spirit, that you'd come upon them to overflowing, Lord, and that you would empower them to be witnesses for you. And they'd be bold in their faith. And they would care more about the people than anything related to themselves, Lord. 
I pray that you'd equip those that need equipping. I pray, Lord, that you would give encouragement to those that think that you are limited by any frailty or lack that they have, because you're not. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal how great you are. I pray, Father, that many would come to know Christ through us, that you would send us out and we'd be willing to go and be away from the areas of comfort that we enjoy and be willing to proclaim your gospel boldly, Lord. Thank you that your gospel is the power of salvation, that it is powerful. I pray, Lord, that every one of us would have your gospel on the tip of our tongue, ready to preach it. Thank you, Jesus. You said the harvest field is ripe. Lord, I pray that you would send us into the harvest field and send more people than even us, Lord. Multiply us. Multiply your disciples, Lord, as your word talks about. Multiply. Not for our sake, not for having a bigger church, but for your kingdom, for changed lives, for eternity being changed in people's lives. Father, use us, Lord. Bring multitudes of people to Christ through us. We know you can do so much with so little. We're frail. We know you use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. But we know why you use us, so that you'll receive glory when you work through our lives. Increase our confidence in the power of prayer. Increase our availability to your Holy Spirit to use us as he sees fit, Lord. Bring in a massive harvest of souls, I pray. We all agree in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Now I want to pray for those who haven't received Christ that are here. Let me explain the gospel to you. You don't become a Christian by being a good person or believing in God or being religious. You could never do enough good works to undo your sin that you've sinned against God with. God is perfect. The standard is perfection. So if you've fallen short of perfection, you qualify. That's why God's word says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So God loves you. He didn't leave you in that condition. He died for you on the cross. He took the punishment that you deserved, on the, I deserved on the cross. He took the full punishment so that you could receive salvation as a free gift. Maybe you've never heard that salvation is a free gift before. You just have to ask and God will give it to you. If you're here today and you've never been born again, which means you've never had a spiritual birth by receiving that free gift, I want you to raise your hand right now and I pray for you to receive Christ and lead you in a prayer. Is anybody here? Anybody here at all? You've never received Christ before. You don't even know what that means. If you're here today, I want to pray for you and I want to lead you in a prayer. Raise your hand high so I can see it. You're not joining this church. God may lead you to this church. He may lead you to a completely different church. That's none of our business. That's not why we're doing this. You're not joining this church. This is between you and God. You know you need forgiveness. You know you need God to forgive you of your sins. You know you've never received the free gift of eternal life. You want to know him personally, not just know about him. If that's you, raise your hand. Let me see your hand. Anybody here? Just want to give you a chance. Don't wiggle. I might say I see that hand. Anybody here? I see someone pointing somewhere else. Anybody? No one? Going once? Just kidding. Okay. Let's, Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've done through your word here. Thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit. Continue to grow us. Continue to make us your disciples for your glory. Thank you for what you're doing in our church, Lord. Thank you that people are getting saved. Thank you that people are getting delivered from addictions. Thank you that you are putting people in their right minds. Thank you, Lord, that you're putting marriages back together. Thank you, Lord, that you're helping people be good stewards of their finances. Thank you, Lord, that you're, you're just showing your kindness and your love and your grace towards us in so many ways. 
and we're growing as your church. We just pray, Lord, that you would use us beyond anything we could ever dream of. And we pray that you would receive glory for everything that happens through our lives, Lord. Help us all to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit's leading. We thank you for his leading and his guidance. We thank you that he knows what's best for us individually and collectively. We yield ourselves to your Holy Spirit. And we yield it in Jesus' name. Amen.